Good morning, Cornerstone Church. It is good to see you. If we haven't met yet, my name is Jason, and I have the privilege of serving as one of your pastors. I've been around uh, this neck of the woods for a whopping three months. And so if we haven't met each other, I'm looking forward to it. But it is good to be here. Uh, it is a joy uh, to serve on this staff, to serve this, this community, this fellowship. Uh, it is a tremendous privilege uh, to say these words to you today. If you have a copy of God's Word, would you open to Ephesians chapter 3? We have the tremendous privilege of opening up His Word and studying it together. Ephesians chapter 3, we're going to begin reading here in verse 14. I have a question for you as you're finding your way to Ephesians chapter 3. Are you a forgetful person? Uh, most of us are forgetful. I'll just tell you a little bit about the conversations that happen in my household on a daily basis, sometimes an hourly basis. Um, one of those conversations is this, can you call my phone? Uh, it's normally from my wife, but it is, it is something that is misplaced often. I don't know if that's you. Um, or it's where are the keys, right? If you don't have that designated place for the keys, we are forgetful of lots of things, menial things like keys and phones but we can also be forgetful of meaningful things, things that actually hold tremendous value to us. Um, one thing to know about me is uh, we, and my entire family, we love Mexican food. And so this, if you know that, this, will, this story will not surprise you. I'm going to say restaurant, but just from here on out, assume Mexican restaurant, if I say the word restaurant. So uh, we were out, we had our a daughter number two. And uh, it was just a couple weeks, if you remember as parents, um, that first time that you get to go out with those newborns, you know, my wife is kind of getting healed up and we go out to a restaurant, Mexican restaurant, that's what we're out to, and uh, we're, we're hauling baby number two out and it's been a couple of weeks after she was born. Our first time out as a family of four and we go out and we're eating and having a wonderful time and my wife says, hey, I'm going to take Addie, our oldest, and uh, we're going we're gonna to head back to the car and I'll meet you back there. I said, okay. And so I went. I paid the bill, I go, I get in the car, and I fire the car up, and I look over, my wife, her eyes are about this big, and she's staring at me, and she goes, where's McKenna? And I was like, oh no. I, I left my infant daughter in a Mexican restaurant booth. And so I went running back in, like probably faster than I've ever ran, went back in, here she is just sitting, Googling and whatever, you know, just sitting back there. And, um, and I come back, and I'm like horrified, like how do you lose and leave behind an infant? And here's how you do it. All right, I'm going to explain myself. You also think I'm the worst dad. He likes Mexican food and he's the worst dad ever. All right. So just getting to know each other here a little bit. The reason that I left her is because I was so accustomed to being a family of three. We had been that for almost two years. I'd grown accustomed to it, not just even being the two of us. We added one into our, our little duo, and so I was used to that. It wasn't that I didn't love her, that I didn't value her. I was new to this thing, and I was new to my understanding that I needed to get to in a hurry and did pretty quickly, that we were now a family of four. You can even forget things that are meaningful. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 3, is going to remind us of that. That we can, we can be a forgetful people and we can forget even the most important things like our relationship with Christ and the relationship with Christ that brings us into a relationship with one another. So Ephesians chapter 3 is where we find ourselves and Paul wants us to remember something and then he's going to teach us something that we need to be praying as we continue in this series on the prayers of Paul. So what does he want to teach us about prayer and about praying? I want you to notice this in verse 14. This is how he begins. 
Ephesians 3.14 says, When I think of all this, I fall to my knees and I pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. What Paul says as he begins his prayer is there's a reason for his prayer. And his reason is, he says, when I think of all this. Now, what is the all this that Paul is remembering and he is referring to? Well, it's actually, it's captured in Ephesians 1 and 2, and we don't have time to go through that. So let me just give you a a glimpse as to what happens in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2. What happens there is Paul is boasting in the fact that Jesus has saved us. That he left heaven and he came to earth. He suffered and died in our place for our sins. And anyone who would trust in him can enter into a relationship with him. And he's boasting in this. And he's saying to this church, listen, when I think back to my own salvation, and if you know anything about Paul's salvation, it was supernatural, by the way, just like any other salvation. But Paul's thinking about that and it's driving him to prayer. But here's a couple of things that he's just referred to. So when he says, when I think about all this, he's just recalling salvation for them and for himself. Notice in Ephesians 2.1, he says this. He says, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. He's recalling that. He's like, I, I remember how religious I was and yet how dead I actually was. I was very religious and yet I was dead spiritually inside. Then a little bit later on in Ephesians 2.12, he says this. Remember that you lived in this world without God and without hope. That was your state outside of Christ until he came in. But then there are these tremendous rescue words in Ephesians 2 verses 4 and 5 where Paul said this. He said, but God, those two rescue words that are so powerful, but God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. And so Paul is, he's just remembering salvation for himself, and I'm sure in this church where he spent many years leading people to faith in Christ, he's going, I remember it. I, when, I, when I think about his tremendous salvation, it's drawing me in and it's actually drawing me down to something. But it's not just that because where Ephesians 2 ends is he's talking about in Ephesians 1 and 2 that Jesus came and he transforms us. We become a brand new me. I become a brand new me. But then where he ends is he says, not only that, but we become a brand new we. Listen to these words in Ephesians 2, 14 and 15. He says, but Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles. That word Gentile there simply means anybody that's not Jewish. So he's saying God's people and the rest is what that means. He, he made us into one person. In his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us, and he made peace between Jews and everyone else by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. And so I want you just to think about what Paul's thinking about before we get to his prayer. He goes, when I think about this, when I think about my own salvation, when I think about your salvation, Bob in Ephesus, remember down by the river, Bob, when, you know, Jesus drew you to himself. I remember that. And then do you remember what he made us into collectively? This, this draws Paul to do something. His, his wondering about this, these things. And what it draws him to do is it draws him to pray. So what I want to do is I want to talk about just briefly his prayer. And there's three things that you're going to see in Paul's prayer. He's going to teach us how we need to pray. He's going to teach us what we need to pray. And then we're going to learn about why. 
we need to pray. So point number one, if you're taking notes, is this. How we pray, it matters. How we pray matters. So Paul, as he's thinking about these things, again, Ephesians 3, 14, he says, when I think about this, I fall on my knees and I pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. He falls to his knees and he prays. This should strike us as we're reading this because falling to your knees, kneeling down to pray was very uncommon. Most people in the first century that were in this kind of Jewish context, they stood to pray. If you think about, uh, as you see Jews today praying, let's say, for example, at the Wailing Wall, right? You see them praying. Sometimes you see them kind of moving so that they might catch the eye of the Spirit. There's kind of some movement that's there, but they're typically standing. Paul is nearly every time that he's praying, he's standing, or maybe he's sitting, but rarely, if ever, is he on his knees before the Lord. What's so significant about that? Well, you probably know this, but I just want to draw this out. The, the posture that we take in prayer, it, it matters, doesn't it? Like, like where our minds are, but even more than that, like where our hands are, where our eyes are, even where our body is positioned. Jesus talked about different ways that we pray, and actually, he talked about different dimensions, I believe, of the intensity of our prayers. If you remember in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is talking about praying, and he's encouraging the believers to pray, and these are his encouraging words to them, Matthew 7, 7. He says, keep on asking, and you'll receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking, and you will find. Keep on knocking, and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who seeks finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. So many commentators over the years have seen Jesus' uh, kind of words of different types of praying here as kind of in- intensification of prayer. So for example, when Jesus says to ask in prayer, what he's saying is, is that we're just going to be asking, right? Every single one of us at some point, whether you're a follower of Jesus yet or not, you've asked God for things, right? And when we ask, we're just like, God, I, I just I pray that you would do this or you would move in this way or whatever. And we're just simply asking. But then Jesus says there's another level of prayer and it's called seeking. And when you're seeking in prayer, you're not only stating something, but you're on the lookout for it, Right? So you're saying that prayer and then you're going, God, is that you? Because I've, I've been asking you for that and I'm wondering, God, is that it? Or, or maybe in your seeking out as you're offering up a prayer, you're saying, God, am, am I the answer to that prayer that I've been offering up to you? Is that, is that me or is that him or her? But then there's this other level of intensification in prayer that Jesus calls knocking. Like, have you ever been in prayer over something? And it's not just, God, would you do this? It's not, God, are you, are you up to this? And should we be here? It's this. God, like you, you, you've got to open up this door because this heart is dead and cold that I'm praying for or this opportunity or this relationship or whatever it is. This is a closed door and God, you're the only one that can open it. There's asking, there's seeking, there's knocking. You know what I think is kind of the fourth dimension and in intensification of prayer? It's kneeling. Like, like kneeling is getting on your face before the Lord and just saying, I can't even lift my arms to knock on the door of heaven. God, I am utterly lost without you. Unless you move, God, there's nothing that I can do. Have you ever been there? When 
My daughter, who I forgot in a Mexican restaurant booth, was one year old. She made it. I, went, I don't know if I told you I went back and rescued her. But anyways, so she, she, we decided to keep her, and so she's with us, and uh, she's, she is 12 months and 22 days old, and uh, uh, we're just a couple days from Christmas, and we're celebrating, and I noticed that she, she doesn't look quite the same, and then she collapses, and I go over to her, and she is completely blue. She has stopped breathing. Her eyes rolled in the back of her head. She's... 12 months and 22 days old, and I'm telling you, I thought my kid had taken her last breath. And I have no idea what to do. I was assuming that she was having a seizure. I had no idea what to do. My wife frantically calls 911. After a very long time, it could have been seconds, it felt like hours. But eventually, as we're crying out her name, she finally opens up her eyes and takes a very slow, one singular breath, and she's just staring straight ahead. And about that time, the EMTs showed up at our house. They come in, and they start to treat her. They pick her up, and they say, one of you needs to come with us. And they go rushing out my door as quickly as they came in with lights and sirens blaring, and they carry, at that point, my mostly lifeless daughter out the door with my wife, and just as quickly as they came in, they left, and they peeled away, and I was left in this utter silence of what in the world just happened, and is my kid going to live? And the only thing that I thought to do in that moment is I fell on my face on the carpet, and I just begged God to save her life. God, if you don't save her, I, I think I may have seen her alive for the last time. It was that type of moment, and by God's grace, she was able to get the treatment that she needed. She did have a seizure that was fever-induced, and we went through all of these learnings of what that means and what that looks like. And, but have you ever been there? Like in those intense moments? Paul is in that moment right now. Like what is so serious to Paul that he's not just asking and he's not just seeking He's even beyond knocking that he's kneeling and he's just saying, God, you have got to come through for these people that I love in Ephesus. What is his prayer? And should it be informing our prayers in the way that we pray? How he prays matters, and we should look at that. But number two, I want you to notice that what we pray matters as well. Just setting the stage for what he's about to pray, what matters to him, and what he's going to do is he's going to offer up two prayer requests. I want you to pay attention to these two prayer requests that Paul gives us. Number one, his first prayer request is this, God, give us power so that we're changed within. God, would you do in my brothers and sisters in Ephesus, would you transform them where they need to be transformed most, which is inside? Ephesians 3.16 says this. He says, I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. That's his prayer request. God, would you give us power? Would you give them power so that they're changed within? You see, Paul knew a lot about the Christian life. He, he was a man, and I've already mentioned this, that knew what it was to live on the outside as a religious individual. He knew all about it. He knew the places to go and the places not to go, the things to say and the things not to say, the things to read and the things not to read. He knew all of this stuff 
that he needed to know on the outside to give everybody the impression that he was okay. The problem was he was not okay. He was dead inside. His heart didn't beat for the Lord. And he knows that if the church in Ephesus is going to do what God's called them to do, what he's planted them to do, they have to continue to come alive on the inside because that's where transformation takes place. Right? We want that transformation on the inside. There are people in our lives, I'm guessing, in your life and in mine, that I'm asking the Lord, I'm seeking the Lord in, I'm knocking on the door and even kneeling, God, would you change them? But the change that I desperately want to see in them is not on the outside, it's on the inside. God, we need this change on the inside. And so that's what he prays. God, transform on the inside. And so what does it look like when somebody is transformed on the inside? He gives us two metaphors for that. Ephesians 3.17, he says this, then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Christ will make your home in his home in your hearts as you trust him. And so if you're, if, if you're kind of advanced in Bible study, you're reading this and you're like, well, Christ, that's Jesus. He's going to make his home in your heart. I thought that Jesus, I thought we invited Jesus into our hearts when we were saved. Like, isn't Jesus' home already our hearts? The answer is yes and no. Like, it's, it's, it is true that Jesus comes to reside in us through his Holy Spirit, that we are sealed, that the Spirit dwells inside us. And yet, Paul knows all of that, and he still prays this prayer because there is more of Christ that he wants to see in their lives. If, if you want that inner man or woman to be transformed, Jesus needs to take up more space in the home of your heart. One of the reasons that we know that is it's, it's a little bit hidden for us in the English, but there's two words for home. It's actually the word dwell here. In the Greek, there's a word that means dwell that means like, yeah, you just show up and you take up residence for a time. It's kind of like an Airbnb, okay? You're just like, yeah, this is like I'm staying here for a little while. But Paul chooses the other word that's not the Airbnb word. It is, this is where my permanent dwelling is. And he says, that's what I'm praying, is that, is that Jesus would move into every room and it would appear like he's the one that lives there. My family's experiencing this right now. So we've been here for three months. We've been in a rental for nearly all of those three months. And in that rental, we have put no paint on the walls, uh, I have not ripped out carpet, even though I wanted to. I have not put in new countertops. I have not even put holes in the wall intentionally. Um, it's a rental. It's like, man, this is temporary. This is not us. No pictures on the wall, nothing. It's kind of just lame. But last week, we bought a house. Last weekend, some of you came and helped us to move in. And so guess what? In one week's time span, most walls are painted. I don't know how it happened. Thank my wife for that, all right? But there's like paint everywhere, and there is, uh, there's new carpet that is on its way, and, and there's drywall that's about to be hung, and all of these other things. And if you were to come to my house, if you were to come to my rental, you would say, who in the world lives here? Like, there's no pictures on the wall. You can't even tell who lives here. But you come to my house now, and you'd be like, well, this is a mess, just because it's today, all right? But if you come to my house in a week, or you come to my house in a month, or you come to my house next year, you're going to say, oh, the Green family lives here. And the longer that you live in that house, the longer it just takes on you. That's what Paul's praying. 
He's saying there is a, there's a, 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 a deeper understanding that people will see that Jesus dwells in your heart. He resides there permanently because every little area of your life, every room, your, your, your heart, your mind, your affections, your will, your relationships, your purpose, all those different areas of your heart, Jesus is going to say, can I set up my stuff here? I'm going I'm to hang my pictures on the wall, and you're going to know that Christ dwells there. That's what the answer to this prayer would be for them, that Christ would dwell there. How in the world do you do that? Like, this is like preacher stuff, right? And you're like, let Christ dwell in your, dwell in your heart. And you're like, that sounds good. So how, how do you do that, right? Let me give you one practical word from Paul in another letter called the letter to the church in Colossae, Colossians. Here's what he says, and this is what Eugene Peterson's message interpretation says of Colossians 3.16. He says, quote, let the word of Christ, that is the message, have the run of the house. Give it plenty of room in your lives. According to Colossians 3.16, if, if you want Jesus to have the run of your house, make sure that the word of Christ dwells richly in your life. If you want to know how Jesus wants to remodel all those different areas of your life, your heart and your mind and your affections and your will and all those other things, be in his word. That's the blueprint for the way that he wants to transform your heart. So, being strengthened on the inside, Paul gives us another analogy in Ephesians 3.17, the second half, where he says not only is your heart his home, but he says your roots will go down into God's love and it will keep you strong. So he wants them to have Jesus dwelling in their hearts, but also he uses this agricultural term where he says, I want, I want you to grow deep roots into Christ. And I want you to just think about why he's using that analogy. Like heart, maybe we understand roots. What do the roots do? Like if roots go deep, what's the result? The result of roots going deep into Christ is that the plant's going to be healthy, Right? It's going to be strong. It's going to be able to have deep roots so that it can get the nourishment that it really ultimately needs. But the ultimate purpose of the plant that Paul's referring to and the ultimate purpose of the plants that that Jesus often referred to is it's not for them to have deep roots and people to say, wow, isn't that lovely? It's for them to bear fruit, right? Jesus knew this. He talked about this with his disciples, John chapter 15, where he's walking on his way to the garden where he's going to be arrested and he's going to face trial and ultimately crucifixion. And on his way with his 11 disciples, he's walking past and some, some people even think he was walking through a vineyard. And he says these famous words in John fifteen five. He says, yes, I am the vine, but you all are the branches. And those who remain in me, I in them, will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do, what's the next word? You can do nothing. And then I'm just, just out of curiosity, I kept reading. I want you to notice verse 8. John 15, 8 says this. Jesus said, when you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. Some translations say you prove to be my disciples. This brings great glory to my Father. I think that's what Paul was after. He was after what Jesus was after. He wanted great glory to be brought to the Father as they are transformed on the inside and roots go down deep. And the reason that roots should go down deep is because 
He wants them to be fruitful. He wants their lives to be fruitful. Now, just a little bit more about me. My family just moved from Washington State. And we're in the part of Washington State that's the dry side of the state. If you didn't know that there was a dry side to Washington, uh, welcome to my world because I didn't know that eight years ago either. But on that side, there are apple trees. There are cherry trees. If you've had Washington apples, Washington grapes, if you've had Welch's or you've had uh, Treetop or any of those brands, that was our backyard. And so living in this high ag valley for about seven years, I learned a lot of things. And so I, want, I just want to give you a pop quiz just to see if you know perhaps what I learned while I was there. All right, you guys ready for my pop quiz? All right, so question number one is this. It's about fruit. So apple trees produce what kind of fruit? Apple. Did you guys live in Washington too? All right, good, very good. That's, that's very true. So cherry trees produce what? cherries that's exactly right all right think about this one grape vines produce grapes all right so here's the last one jesus followers produce what in the simplest form they produce jesus right when jesus says when you produce much fruit, you prove to me be my disciples. What is a disciple? It's a follower of Jesus. That's a, I like you, front row. That is so good. That's what ends up happening. That's why roots matter, because of the fruit that's going to be produced. And so Paul is praying here that they might be able to see that that they might be able to do that. And Jesus gives us great words that the, the command in John 15 that Jesus gave his disciples, it was not to bear fruit. It's so interesting to me that Jesus never said, make sure that you bear fruit. The only command that Jesus gives his disciples as they're walking through the vineyard in John 15, he says, remain in me. It is hold on to me for dear life. And I think that's what, I think that's what Paul is saying when he says roots. He's saying Make sure, guys, that Jesus is living in your heart and make sure that you are holding on to him with everything that you possibly have. So that's the first request that he has. God, give us power that we're changed within. But then he prays our second prayer request in verse 18. He prays this, God, give us understanding to grasp your limitless love. There's something about knowing and experiencing the love of Christ that actually serves the purpose of transforming us inside. Notice Ephesians 3.18. He says, And may you have power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May you have power to understand as part of his prayer. May you understand this limitless love. And then he uses this wide and long and high and deep language. And scholars have wrestled with this. Is he saying that there's, like you can quantify in some way, Jesus' love, and I don't know that's necessarily what he's saying, but what he's, what he's getting at is there's, I want you to know, and, and this word that he uses here is, it's more of a head knowledge. Like there's things to learn to engage our minds in understanding the love of Christ. 
And so what are those things? Well, let me just kind of give you a picture of what he might be talking about here. He says, may we know how wide Jesus' love, love is. When I think of how wide Jesus' love is, I think about how it is all-encompassing and it is for everyone. Like Jesus' love is so wide that every, it is for every tribe, tongue, nation, language. It is for the worst sinner and the most religious individual. His love is wide. It is so wide it's wide enough for you. It's wide enough for me. That's how wide his love is. And I think about how long his love is. If you think about how long his love goes on, his love goes on forever, doesn't it? You can't outrun his love. You can't run away from his love. You won't be walking in his love and you're walking down the way and you, and you want to you get away from it or you think that you've uh, somehow disqualified yourself from his love. His love is too long for that. You, you can't get away from it. His love is high is the next word that he uses. I think what maybe he's referring to here is he's talking about how, how lofty his love is. Like, like the places and the blessings that he has for us that we won't know until we're in eternity, are incredible. Like Paul would later write in other letters that there is, that we are actually seated in the heavenlies with Christ. And he's talking about here and now. We dwell here, but we've got a, we've got a seat reserved for us in the heavenlies. And there's a plaque with your name, if you're a follower of Jesus, on that seat. And that's where you're going to rule and reign with him forever. Like wrap your brain around that. That's crazy. How high is his love? And then the last one is, how deep is his love? Like, you, you think about the, the depths in which Jesus was willing to go for you. Like, Jesus is the man, Philippians 2 tells us, that left heaven, where he was worshipped as Lord and King. He left heaven and he came to earth, but he didn't just come to earth. He came to earth and he took on the form of a servant. But he didn't just take on the form of a servant. He became a servant who died. But he didn't just die. He died the death of a criminal. He died on a criminal's cross. And you think about, if, listen, if you and I were in a place and people were bowing to us regularly and saying, you're God and you're amazing, I'd be like, I'm, I'm good to stay here forever. That's what we would do. But Jesus, in that place, had everything that he could possibly have except you and said, I'm willing to give all this up for them. And you think about the depth of his love for you. And Paul says, I, I pray that even in your mind, you would start to supernaturally, the Spirit would allow you to understand the depth of his love. And then he says in Ephesians 3.19, he says, may you then experience the love of Christ, though it's too great to understand fully. So there's a power to understand. He's talking about head knowledge but then there's this other, other knowledge, right, in Ephesians 3.19 where he says, may you experience the love of Christ. Like knowing about Jesus' love and experiencing Jesus' love, are, are, they're different, aren't they? You might know about the love of Christ, but if I were to ask you, how have you personally experienced the love of Christ, what would be your answer? He says that there, there, is, there is a love, Ephesians 3.19 in the NIV version, it says, to know this love that surpasses knowledge. What he's saying here is that there's schools and there are books and things like that that you can, you can go to and you can study about the love of God. But then there's a better school known as the school that surpasses knowledge, which is the experiential way in which we learn the love of Christ. Whether you've done that individually, 
Maybe your family has experienced the love of Christ. We have a place that is near and dear to my family in southern Mexico in the state called Oaxaca. And I was actually reading through this text years ago, and I was leading a devotion that they had there. And I read this verse in the NIV that says that we are to know this love that surpasses knowledge. And I said, man, I've been to great schools. I've got degrees behind my name and all of these things. But the greatest school of love that I've ever experienced on planet Earth is right here in rural Oaxaca, Mexico. <laughs> and the reason is, is because I get to experience the love of Christ as they love on kids that have been orphaned and abandoned and abused by their families. And it is just this beautiful display of the love of Christ. And what I told them is, thank you for opening up your school to us. The school of Christ's love that we come and we just sit and we just watch and learn and we take it in and we're better. We're better formed because we've sat in this school. Do you have a place like that? Do you have a people like that where you get to see the school of Christ's love? And then he ends this way. He says, if, if, if God were to answer uh, my prayer request, these two prayer requests, then he concludes this way. Ephesians 3.19, the second half, he says, then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. He doesn't mean that you'll be made perfect when he says be made complete. He's talking about being filled up with two things, with both life and with power that come from God. If God were just to answer these two prayer requests, that, that Christ were able to dwell in your inside like, like he needs to, and you were able to love like this, you would be able to accomplish this, and that is Paul's desperate prayer for these people. May you be transformed in these two ways by him. And it's an incredible prayer. I, I said at the beginning of the message, I think this is a wonderful prayer for us to take into our own prayer journals and our own prayer closets to pray these things. And it's good to pray these things. I think it is also incredibly difficult to live in light of this prayer, to have this prayer fall on us and transform us. And the reason that I pause and I say that is because though Paul is pleading with God to do this in their lives, I believe Paul had an insight into their lives. We know that he did from his time there, but maybe even supernaturally, Paul knew what the church in Ephesus needed. And what we find out in the book of Revelation is that they didn't heed Paul's prayer. It's, it, I don't mean to end on kind of a tragic way, and we're not, but I just want you to understand, Paul is pleading and he's saying, God, you need to do this. And he's writing this prayer and saying, folks, you need to own up to this and pray this for yourself. And I want you to hear the rebuke that comes from the Lord Jesus to the Apostle Paul to this church in Ephesus. And just think about what Paul prayed and what mattered most as he knelt for them. Revelation 2.2 says this. The Lord Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, I know all the things you do. I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance. That's good, right? Jesus sees that they're hardworking and they're patient. I know you don't tolerate evil people. That's good too. You've examined the claims of those who say they're apostles, but they're not. You've discovered they're liars and you have patiently suffered for me without quitting. Like that is awesome, right? You're enduring, you're patient, you're, you're wise, you're, you're casting out evil and all these other things. Like on the outside, at the church of Ephesus, it looks like this is a thriving church. 
But back to Paul's point, he says, you can look one way on the outside and not be transformed in the ways that you most desperately need to be transformed. And that's why the Lord Jesus rebukes them and says, but I have this complaint against you. Just one. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you've fallen. Turn back to me and do the works that you did at first. Come back to your first love. See, what this tells me is that we could be hardworking, we could be patient, we could, we could not put up with evil in our world, all these other things. To borrow a term from Paul, he would say, you're doing all these wonderful things, right things, good things, but they're like a, just like a clanging symbol because you don't have love. You don't have love for one another. You don't have transformation in your heart. And it's, and it's affecting your love for me and the love that you have for one another. And so return to me. And again, back to the multifaceted, dimensional love of Jesus. His love is a love that did fall lavishly on Ephesus once again. The Apostle John was one of the guys that was actually a pastor of theirs at one point. He's actually buried at the church in Ephesus. I think about Paul's words, and this is where we'll end. Point number three, if you're taking notes, we talked about how we pray matters, what we pray matters. I just want you to think about why we pray matters, number three. Why do we pray? Well, we pray because God, God's able to transform us. God is able to do a work, and he's worthy of our prayers. Ephesians 3.20 and 21 say this, Now all glory to God, who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we ask or think. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Here's what he's saying is that I'm going to pray this prayer and I don't know what God's going to do with it and how he's going to use it, but I know that he, he uses prayers like this and he, then he does so much more than he, he can even ask or think. Far more. And so glory to him in that church, in this church, in Christ more and more. So, how do we respond? And how we pray, maybe for some of us in how we pray, there are things that we need, and we've been asking the Lord for, maybe we need to intensify our prayers and become seekers in those prayers or knocking on the door of heaven or maybe even falling on our knees in complete dependence for him. Maybe we can learn that. What about what we pray? Are we praying for transformation in the place that we most desperately need it, which is on the inside? Are we praying that we might know and chase down knowledge of Christ's love, but also experiences within his love? And then are we understanding that over all those things, God's just bigger than we give him credit for? He's able to do that and so much more than our silly and simple little prayers that we offer up to him. The way that we're going to respond today is not in prayer. We'll have a moment to pray in our song, but we're going to respond by taking what we call the Lord's Supper. I just thought it would be really neat for us to kind of end here as we think about ways that we can even wrap our, our own minds around the love of Christ. What, a, what an incredible opportunity. And, and how, how smart is God <laughs> that, that he would... He would 
implement something that we do on a regular basis, not individually, but as a, as a family, that we can put in our hands and we can, we can touch and we can taste and we can smell and we can see and we can do together that reminds us, because we're a forgetful people, of the love of Christ. So if you're a follower of Jesus here, we ask you to take the cup if you have one. If you weren't able to pick one up, um, if you want to slip your, your hand up, we can run a cup to you right now. Just keep your hand up until one of our ushers brings you a cup. No need to get up. We'll bring it to you. Keep your hand up if you need one. But as followers of Jesus, we're going to remember, according to his own words, what he did for us. But then also Paul, in his words in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he tells us that not only do we remember, but when we participate in the Lord's Supper, we also proclaim. We proclaim his love and we proclaim his coming. And so we're gonna do that together. If you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, we ask you to not take the cup. Don't pop the lid, don't pull the tab. We have something better for you today. Instead of taking the bread and the juice, would you take Jesus today as your personal Savior and Lord? And maybe for the first time today, God's waking you up to the tremendous dimensions of his love for you. If you're a follower of Jesus, would you pull the tab off of the bread and take the bread? And I just want to read Paul's words that came directly to him from the Lord Jesus where he says to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, he says this to that church, for I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself, that on the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and he gave thanks to God for it. And then he broke it into pieces and he said to them, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this, you forgetful people. And remember me. Let's remember Christ today. And then the cup. Paul goes on and says, In the same way that he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. Let's drink. Paul concludes, and then we'll pray. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. So Lord Jesus, we, your people, come together and we are collectively declaring your death, because we know what your death meant. Your death for us meant that we, sinners, dead in our own, because you died, we now live. And so we say thanks. We remember. We think back on the time that we were outside of Christ, and we remember that you came and you rescued us. That by your grace, we were able to be saved. And God, we thank you for the tremendous blessing of, of not just coming into relationship with you, but God, thank you that we can come into relationship with one another. 
that we can that we can break bread right now that we can take the bread and take the cup and we're sitting next to brothers and sisters they don't even have to say it but we know they've experienced exactly what we've experienced thank you for this collective reminder of the the width the length the height the depth of your love and God we just pray we, we pray for the people that you may have even been prompting us to pray for this morning that we are asking, we are seeking, we are knocking. Lord, maybe we even need to be kneeling and saying, God, would you open up the doors of their heart? Would you open up this opportunity over here, this job, this relationship, whatever it might be? We want to seek you. We want to know you. And Lord, we want you to take our simple little prayers and do abundantly more because we don't even know how to ask. We pray that you might be glorified today through it all in Jesus' name.